Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. All right, folks, today we're joined by Roger Cargill. Roger Cargill has been in the waste and recycling industry for over 28 years, beginning his journey at Michigan State University, who, as you all well know, lost to the big blue this past weekend. Boo, says Roger. Ouch. I know it's kind of harsh, but hey, we had to put it out there. After leaving MSU in 2008, Roger began working for Shoepan Recycling, first as a public space recycling professional, partnering with organizations such as NASCAR, Coca-Cola, and DTE. The business partnerships grew uh, to include MGM Detroit, uh, which was able to reduce their annual waste cost by 50% through recycling and organics. Roger also created a collection system for water bottles during the Flint water crisis, which you might have seen in the news. Now Roger is the sustainability project manager for ShoePan, and I'm going to let him kind of fill in a little bit more of the gap on that and tell us something that we don't know about you, Roger. The life of Roger Cargill started... uh in college, I used to rodeo, which is probably something most people don't know about. I rode bulls, rope calves, and steers. Um, at 35, I decided to pick up being a, a ice hockey goalie and uh, just making sure I thoroughly enjoy my life. Sweet. Roger also has uh, two big dogs and uh, loves to spend the weekends on the lake. Uh, and we'll talk about one of his other hobbies a little bit later, which uh, is a little bit near and dear to me. So, Roger, let's launch right into today. Uh, we're going to really go through a couple different things. Uh, number one, your outstanding ability to put together events-based recycling is is pretty cool. And number two, glass recycling in the state of Michigan as it relates to the bottle bills. So we're going to talk through a couple things. Uh, you've done some pretty wicked cool big events in recycling. Um, Faster Horses comes to mind. Can you walk us through how Shoepan got into the event recycling space and what makes it go successfully? Well, I, let's take that question backwards. The success of the program um, was based on a lot of hard work, uh, but the hard work was uh, founded in, in my passion, and my passion is to make a difference. So the events recycling started when Coca-Cola formed its own recycling division and was looking for ways to interact with intercollegiate athletics. I was at Michigan State University managing the trash and recycling and ran into Shupan uh, attempting to do a public space recycling effort for their first time. I found it interesting, I found it focused, um, and I found Shupan as a fantastic family-based company who's now 50 years old um, and realized there was an opportunity outside of Michigan State to do that. Uh, Chupan had developed their idea, but it was just an idea. They asked me to leave Michigan State after 18 years and move to their company, and they gave me 100 recycling bins and no help and decided he can do it. And so I threw my... uh, heart and soul into it for 10 years 
Uh, and it, it's a very difficult um, part of recycling to do. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes. We had a lot of successes. And I would say that an event like Faster Horses and working with Live Nation is as big as you can get in, our, in, in, our, um, in the atmosphere of event recycling. Live Nation is the world's largest entertainer. So tell me, you know, when you think about event space recycling today, knowing what you know, what are the things that are really putting it together? What, what makes it successful? for an event to do a recycling program, besides grit and passion? I think that what I learned uh, from every one of my clients is that if I just sat there and listened and spoke less and listened more, I found out what they wanted to do. I found out that they had as much of passion for their event as I do for recycling. And I had a number of comments from my uh, customers going down the line that anybody crazy enough to try, try and do event recycling would walk in and tell the event what they could do for them. Where Shupan took a different approach. We said, what do you want us to do for you? And uh, we created that trust. We reduced that anxiety level by not using the word zero waste because that would just tip people over the edge. We used waste minimization. We used the right thing to do. We used those words that were warm uh, and created that relationship. Uh, and and I remember I, I remember a key client in 2009. I was introduced to NASCAR by Coca-Cola. I sat in a meeting with the president of a track with their operations manager, and the operations manager, after my full uh, proposal, said, "Wait." We just taught people how to put trash in bags, and now you want us to have them sorted out and separated out into a blue bag and a black bag and recycle this and do it right? It's just not going to work here. And a number of years later, on his retirement race, he walked up to me, found me on the track, and said, I never would have believed it worked, but you've saved us thousands of man hours, and it's worked, and it's provided us to be the cleanest track in the country. That's the kind of payback you get. It doesn't have to be cash, but it's a pat on the back and a good shake hand from somebody that's been in the business for 40 years. And you go, we were successful. That right there is success. So as we talk about success, I mean, a, a lot of people, when you start using the word recycling, they, they start talking about money first and foremost. Well, how much are you going to save me? How much is it going to bring me? How do you change that conversation and, and get them back to that waste minimization point? You have to start off that conversation saying, our industry made a mistake. 10, 15 years ago, we were scared people would, weren't going to recycle. They were going to run away from it. They weren't going to uh, follow our cause, so we, so we did it for free. Or we at least told people it was for free. That was a mistake. And let's start off that conversation saying, we made a mistake. It's not free. It, at best, will be cost neutral, and that's a reach in itself. Unless, of course, you bring in those long-term costs that are incorporated in burning, burying, and not reusing, reducing, or repurposing. So I think the biggest start of that conversation is is 
telling people we made a mistake, owning that statement, even if I wasn't part of it or you weren't part of it, and moving forward from there and saying, this is going to cost money. All right. So let's let's think about faster horses. I mean, and just this is kind of a random question to throw at you to pull out of your brain. In terms of how much material you pulled out of an event like that, and I know I didn't prepare you for that question, but I know that you can kind of wing it off the backside of your head. And I'm not looking for anything specific, just, you know, was that a 30% diversion event or was that a 10% diversion event? We approached uh, Live Nation from a whole different plan. First of all, they pushed us way out of our comfort zone. That was an enormous event. That was 50,000 people staying there for three days. Um, The average waste uh, in that event could have been, well, currently, I I know the waste per person now is well over 10 pounds, 15 pounds a person. And when uh, we designed our program, I pulled off 35 tons of recycled material off a three-day event, including seven 53-foot semi-trailers full of water bottles and beer cans, 5,000 pounds of organics. And that per-person waste number at that time was two and a half pounds. So you're talking about a 75% reduction in what they're doing now because they've chosen to go in a different direction. And now they're paying the bill at, at, at the landfill and the trash. Apparently, that's not important to Live Nation, and that's is the direction they've headed. So I'm okay with that. I'm very proud of what, what uh, was accomplished in a short period of time. And those numbers are amazing that we were doing that kind of waste reduction Uh, in an event of that size, which is now, by the way, Faster Horses is considered one of the top uh, Live Nation festivals in the world. That's phenomenal. So 35 tons, seven 53-foot van trailers. Yes. That's a huge impact. What's a bigger impact, honestly, is the societal impact of that event. I hired no less than 10 uh, service groups to work with me on that project. You can't do this stuff alone. I had one service group make $20,000. I had another service group make just short of 12 grand and on down the line, dependent on how many hours and people they supplied. That's a societal impact that's supported by the bottle bill because those cans are, are worth a dime. Um, and it, and it uh, really makes a difference because I had some great teams working side by side with me, um, and I was hauling bags just like they were. So, so let's dive into that a little bit. So event volunteers or service teams, as you call them, are really the backbone to a successful program. Can you take a moment and give us an example without calling out any particular event, the really incredible effect that, you know, that has? You bet. I will pull out Stockbridge football team. Um, I was introduced to them very early in my career. I was introduced to them by a NASCAR event and found their leader to be the Pied Piper of their city. He could pull an amazing team together. It's a farm community. They worked incredibly hard. They made a lot of money. The efforts put towards 
recycling at, at events put brand new football stadium seats in their school football field strictly off the income from what Stockbridge football and myself did together. And I think to me, that's something that, you know, I don't pat myself on the back very often, but that partnership with Jeremy and Stockbridge made an amazing difference in their community. And I run into them now at the grocery store and they are sad that some of the things have changed and some of the bigger events are, are no longer supporting recycling. And in fact, when I battled with Live Nation to keep that contract, I used the Jer- Jeremy's of Stockbridge and the Hanover Hortons and all these communities that, that were significantly doing well and supporting their pay-to-play football programs through recycling. It's a great story, um, and it's unfortunate that these uh, these organizations have chosen to bury it instead of uh, use it to its highest use. So service groups, let's let's expand that a little bit. So you talked about football people. I know the boosters programs of any you know municipal school is a big side of that. You know we use that same example a lot of times at the high school level of putting football program, you know, recycling together or track program recycling together if they're selling pop or water bottles, that if they redeem those products, they can generate some revenue from them. Talk about, you know, just highlight the top 10 service groups that you utilized over the years and, you know, where you grab those people from. Because I know that's one of the things, the challenges that, you know, our listeners probably face is we're always looking for people to help us. And so let's take a snag at that. So service groups, uh, probably where I have failed the most amount of times. Event recycling is nothing without a, without a, a labor force. I found early in my career that the, the uh, event struggled to bring on additional labor from their end. So I needed to supply it. The bottle bill allowed me to not have to eat a full cost of hiring someone. We offset it with the, with the containers, and oftentimes the agreement was, you're going to get this much money. If you don't, then I'm going to pay the difference. And that was built into the uh, contract with the event. But the biggest mistake was, you just can't pull people off the street to do this. This is lugging bags and digging through trash, and sometimes it's 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning. The average person doesn't do this. You have to have a tried-and-true group that you've worked through the system at a low-grade event, medium-grade event, before you put them on the big stage. And I think that that was my number of times I failed in getting the right group for the right event. And some of the events that I did might have been a bit risque, so you had to make sure that, you know, the adult supervision was there to manage it. Uh, so that, I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about um, how to drive people's passion and how to support uh, um, outside groups. And understanding how that ticks helped me be successful in the long run. So, so let's get a little more specific, though. So besides, you know, football boosters, who are those people? Who, who are those kind of people you're reaching out to? Is that social clubs like the Lions Group, um, Jonathan, Rotary Clubs? Jonathan, they, they came from every walk of life. I did um, some of the highest 
uh, income areas um, drew football teams from, uh, not Sterling Heights, but uh, Gross Point to uh, Boy Scout troops out of Livonia, as, as, as I said, Stockbridge football. They came from all walks of life, but they just had a certain drive. And I'm telling you what, getting these people to do this versus selling popcorn, and I can make them 20K, and they're in it, and it lasts three to six days max, where popcorn lasts nine months. It's a great deal. Hard work, but the payoff is there. Are there events where you weren't able to financially incentivize the social groups, the service groups? Or were you always, did you always have a financial incentive for them? You can't always financially incentivize through the bottle bill. Um, when, I, when I knew the attendance of the event wasn't going to reach the needs and basically how many hours they're going to put in, you figure it out, you figure out an hourly rate that they're going to make, and you negotiate that with the group, and, and then, of course, you negotiate that as part of your contract. There were times when the events were so small that uh, you know just they, they weren't going to produce that kind of money, and you had to negotiate a labor rate into the contract. So yeah, you had the, you're still incentivizing it by money, no matter what happens. That's you're not going to get um, a team to volunteer for you and make it work because even a, even a, a volunteer if without incentive to be there, uh, might not show up, might show up late, might leave early, um, and leave you hanging uh, with everything else to take care of. So the secret there is you have to build incentive into the program, regardless if it's in the contract with the organizer, where you're getting some funding that you're passing back to the service group, or you're pulling it from the bottle bill as your mechanism. I think fundamentally that's a problem that we have as you look at household hazardous waste programs and tire redemption programs and all of those other items where people are trying to find volunteers is you're looking for people that have purpose or cause, but you're giving them no hook to come in, right? It's the hook. The hook can be as small as experiencing an environmentally sound program, but as soon as you got to open a trash bag, those people run away. And so just like the bottle bill is incentivized to be successful, you need to incentivize people with food or money because a T-shirt doesn't get it anymore. (laughs) So when you're talking about people running away, let's jump into organics. So organics has to be very difficult um, when when you're going down that road. Tell us a little bit about your experience in the organics diversion at events. Well, first of all, you got to understand the scope of our company. Our company was based on iron recycling. So them for them to even fathom introducing a, a, a part of our business that recycles banana peels was a reach. So I started from day one with my management to say, you know we're going to start with water bottles and we're going to end up with banana peels. There was a significant amount of pushback at that time, but they heard it enough times that I couldn't tell them, uh, they couldn't tell me no. So when the plan was put together to do event recycling, it was put together to be all-encompassing. We didn't want another vendor in there. We wanted to take care of it all. 
we wanted to take care of, we wanted to be the subcontractor for trash. We wanted to take care of that. We wanted the event coordinator to say, this 10% of my event that I have to manage is no longer in your hands. It's in Shupan's hands, and we will take care of it. The, the organic side of that brought on a whole new challenge. The infrastructure in Michigan is, uh, to say the least, is minimal. And so if you were in uh, Cadillac, Michigan, or you were in downtown Detroit, or you were in Lansing, wherever you were, you had to find a reasonable haul to get that material uh, to a site. That's only the start of it. The biggest point of it is to keep it clean, to, to keep it relatively dry. There were so many different things that don't come into play with a water bottle or a pop bottle that it was an extremely um, tall order to quickly learn how to manage 5,000 pounds worth of unconsumed food from faster horses. So you're doing all pre-consumer food organics at these events. You're not doing post-consumer food. That's incorrect. We, we will do both. We have done... Uh, post-consumer food, s plate scrapings, all that kind of uh, good stuff uh, in a very supervised environment. For instance, um, the International Detroit Jazz Festival. We did a uh, waste minimization effort and their um, sponsors event where it was a closed event. It was uh, contained within a fence, so you just had, you didn't have people coming and going. You had a contained uh, type of inputs, therefore you could control the outputs. So you talked about how it's, it's hard to find a home for the organics in, in Michigan, and I know that's true in, in a lot of the country. You know, there's only so many digesters that are available, and there's only so many people that do food induction composting. I mean, there's a lot of people that do leaf and yard waste style composting. I mean, you can find a, a farmer anywhere that'll do that. But when you start throwing food into it, you start making people nervous. Can you talk through that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, it's not only the food, but it's these new, I should say new, relatively new compostable products that your average facility looks at them and goes, well, first of all, I don't trust you to bring the right material to me. And second of all, if you do bring the material to me and it's too contaminated or it's it doesn't break down like I expect it to do. What are you going to do? You know, and that's, it's, it's not just a drop and grow, go. It's a relationship with your uh, vendor, just like anything else. They've got to trust you that you're going to bring a product to them that, that they can work with. Um, and I think when you're talking about an event like the Jazz Festival, that was uh, 5,000 people who donated millions of dollars to this event. And the idea of those people scraping plates and putting the right thing in the right spot was a challenge in itself. So finding those homes for that material start at the plate scraping. So let's wrap up the event portion of our conversation uh, by you giving away a little of your magic. In your own words, what are the three most important takeaways for event recycling? Don't hold back and paint a little color on those takeaways. You know, I think, I think the magic starts with a lot of uh, hard work and honesty. 
a lot of transparency with the customer, um, and creating a partnership based on a trust. If you think you're going to go in there and change the world in the first time you meet with that event or work with that event or have that event, it's not going to happen that way. It's a five-year plan. And so my secret was to tell them that I was going to be there. I was going to support them. Um, I was doing 60-plus events per summer. That equates to 600 event days. And realize in Michigan, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, there's 100 days, to put that into perspective. We were doing roughly 600 days worth of work in a 100-day period. You had to create the trust with that customer. You had to create the idea that you're on their side and you're there for the long run. And this is a long-term plan. This is We sat down and put a five-year plan in place to say, this is what's going to happen. So in year one or year two, when you find a baby diaper in the recycling bin, don't freak out. It's a process. There's no such thing as rapid behavioral change. So my customers are now my friends. I've uh, built trust with them. They believe in me, um, and they believe that I will do what's in their best interest. All right, folks, you heard it right there. Grit and passion is the start of it, and then it's relationships. Keeping people honest, making sure they understand the process. So here's where the rubber meets the road a little bit, Roger. We're going to talk about ShoePan's core business, the bottle bill, uh, plastic, and metal recycling for those who aren't familiar with your organization, tell us a little bit about how you're entrenched in that redemption market in Michigan. Well, the bottle bill was enacted in Michigan in 1979. It's a December 4th, I believe. And it was quite a drastic change. I remember as a kid hearing it was coming, so I started to save up my beer cans so I could I could fraudulently redeem them after the after it was enacted. But the, but the challenge was immediate. Uh, the cans and bottles were in these stores. We had set up a system that was like no other state in the U.S. I might say now it's considered the gold standard, but I'm sure it wasn't even a tin standard when it started out. Those of us that are old enough to remember, we had to recycle by brand. It was Coke, Pepsi, Miller, Bud, on down the line. And that was a real challenge. We had a, a brilliant individual that worked with a company. Unfortunately, I never met the man. His name is Rich Holtz. And he decided there was a, there was a third-party option in there. Instead of that poor grocery store waiting for Pepsi to come in and pick up all their bags and Coke to pick up all their bags and on down the line, they never got their bottle room cleaned out. So Rich Holtz felt like there was a third-party option where we could set up a system of machines that did exist, that would be accountable and reduce fraud. We could pick up, one company could pick up all the material at the same time, and those bottle rooms would be much cleaner and, and much more efficient. And so that happened in the early 80s, but it happened because of, a, of a, an incredible partnership between the Michigan Soft Drink Association, the the Michigan Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association, Shupan, and a lot of other people that dug in, dug in to make this work. And this is not a state-run program. This is a private company-run program that supports the state with about $30 million in the sheets. And I will describe what the sheets are because that's a whole new terminology for a lot of people. So it's a really great program based on 
a handshake agreement uh, that said, we need to make this thing work, and we need to make it work for everybody. ShoePan's part of it uh, is based on constant improvement. We constantly are working at making the system better, and it, it is considered the gold standard for the U.S. We constantly have not only international, uh, but uh, other North American organizations um, trying to install bottle bills in their area come to Michigan to see how it's done right. So going back in the 70s, you know, going back to that crying Indian that we used to see on the television, the bottle bill originally was designed as an anti-litter bill. And it was the crying Indian campaign for those who you are too young to remember it and those of you who are too old to remember it, um, which I'm getting closer to every year. Google had to it. do. You'll, yeah, you'll love it. Google it. You'll love it. You know, YouTube will give you anything in this world. But the crying Indian was a, a man perched atop a mountain looking down on a highway and looking at all the trash that was alongside the highway. And, and we were trying to figure out ways to get people to stop throwing stuff out their car window, uh, you know, besides finding them for litter. And so that was part of the reason that we invented the bottle bill. Um, for a lot of people, it was anti-litter, um, you know, and that was the underlying essence of it. And you're right. The beginning of that was troubling. I mean, you, you went into a grocery store and, all right, one can here, one can here, one can here, one can here. And, yeah, you, you know, you took up a lot of square footage at a, you know, a box retail store like a Meyer that we have in Michigan, which is similar to a Kroger and other communities. And so the automatic machines played a huge part in that, correct? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, every square inch in a retail store is worth so much money. So you got to, they, that's that taking that chunk out and it was always in the back of the stores. It was always creating a mess going to the back of the stores. And I think the stores have gotten to the point where it's all in the front. It's separated. Uh, they're cleaner. There's places to clean your hands. There's, you know, it's a, it's a much better operation, but the reverse vending machine brought in a reduced opportunity for fraud. It's still there, but, uh, probably um, mostly impacted by some am amazing uh, technological upgrades in these machines because these machines are uh, capable of doing so much. On top of that, they are a commodity reduction unit, so it allows us to fit more and more and more containers into the boxes that are underneath there that you never see as a, as a, um, as a redeemer. And so that's another constant um, improvement that happens is these machines get better and faster. So now we're talking about the newest machines out there will do 75 to 85 uh, containers per minute, which is far faster than you can feed it. So that container reduction is a, is a huge part of that. I mean, when you go back to that store model from previous, you had a, you know, a hundred gallon bag, plastic bag packed full of trash cans or not trash cans, but uh, pop cans or beer cans. And that container reduction that that machine's doing, that crunch that we hear when you're loading those machines, that's flattening those cans and bottles. And it's basically taken, what? Probably closer to 50 bags. I mean, you can fit 1,200, or no, I'm sorry, 6,000 cans now in a, in a one container. So even with the new ADA rules that have re required the uh, acceptance of the cans to be at a lower height, so therefore the whole profile is lowered, we're still 
the technology of that uh, uh, crushing equipment inside the reverse vending machine is keeping up with those kind of things that we lost six inches of height in a container. That's a lot of that's a lot of bottles and cans. How do those machines deal with, just kind of on a side note, the unfortunate side of half-drinking bottles? Where does that liquid go to? The containers which Shupan builds are inside each and every one of those uh, units have a huge capacity in the base of them to maintain that liquid. So it's not a problem. In fact, that's an issue that the stores were very concerned about and so worked, worked with them to make sure that that problem is taken care of. On top of that, those containers come back into the store. Shupan has spent a fortune on putting in huge car washes to run these containers through and make sure when they're delivered back to the store, they don't have embedded glass, they don't have trash, and they don't smell. It's fantastic. So let's take a minute, and we used a word a few moments ago called a sheets. Can you explain that a little bit and use the assumption that our listeners are not familiar with the bottle law? Sure. So there's 10 states in the U.S. that have the bottle bill, and Michigan is one of them. Michigan is unique. Um, and all the bottle bill does is describe a specific type of container, specific type of commodity, and say under these types of collect units are covered under the bottle bill, and that requires a certain amount of money in this Michigan. It's 10 cents per container that's going to uh, be paid at the retailer. So let's go through. We're going to work through the following the dime, I call it. So we're going to, so when a wholesaler creates, uh, fills a bottle and ships it to a retailer, there's an exchange of a dime. When the retailer puts it on a shelf and a consumer walks up and buys it, there's an exchange of a dime. And then when the consumer has a choice, they can put it in their curbside bin, they can throw it on the ground, or they can take it back to the grocery store and get their dime back. Then the dime follows the flow all the way back to the wholesaler. It's in the industry, it's called float, just like it would be of you know, borrowing money. So let's go to the end, end of that chain where the, re, where, the, uh, where the consumer has three choices. They can put it in the curbside bin, and that container probably becomes what we call unredeemed. It's very unlikely that a recycling a materials recovery facility or a MRF will actually search through and pull those out. It does happen, uh, but it's very unlikely. The, the, uh, their equipment is going fast enough that they can't afford to wait for that to come across and pick that off. Secondly, they could throw it on the ground where it becomes a social service. In Michigan, that's where the uh, person that doesn't have enough, doesn't have money, that's, they, they might live off dimes, they might, that's minimal income. They find that dime. They know where to look. They pick it up and they take it to the store and redeem it. And the last thing would be actually to run it through the system and, and it would become redeemed. Those containers that are unredeemed contribute to a, to a fund called Ishits. That is the containers that are not redeemed and that money in the state of Michigan is about $30 million. And so that, 25% of that goes to help offset costs for retailers, and 75% goes to protect the Michigan citizen from a landfill exposure or a landfill failure. There's a couple other primary words I want to just bounce on. So we've, we followed the dime, we've talked about a sheets. Then, of course, a store could be an under-redeemer or, or, or an over-redeemer. 
That means an under-redeemer means that they sell more than they take back in, and obviously over-redeemer would be the opposite of that. So the bottle bill is not just this simple bill that sits out there, and, and uh, it is very complex. There's a lot of detail to it. We have to protect against fraud. We have to protect against misuse of the system, or you run into problems just like California has. And so there are many different formats a bottle bill can come in. There can be service fees. There can be redemption centers. Michigan has chosen the model they have. We produce a 91.2% redemption rate. We've had as high as 97%. We feel some of those differences are an increase of glass use in Michigan, and glass is 60% of glass that is sold um, is not redeemed. I'm sorry, 40% is not redeemed. Um, and as well, a tightening of the fraud issues that occur. So therefore, uh, we feel that uh, we protect the funds to go to the DEQ. Uh, we protect the funds that go to, um, to the retailers by doing all these. Roger, I've heard you talk a lot about the beatings you've taken as a hockey goalie over the years, so I'm not going to tiptoe around this one. Why is it so hard to expand the bottle bill? Can you take that as a Michigan question, or you can take that as a much broader scope question? It's your choice. I think I'm going to start with a broader scope because it's you got to really think Michigan is just a part of the world we live in. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to take it from a global perspective. There are more than six bottle bills being enacted next year across the world, and more to come. There's over 40 existing right now in the world. Coca-Cola UK is supporting bottle bills and expansion, and that's the complete opposite of what's happening in the U.S. The challenge with expansion has always been the ABA or the American Beverage Association. They have uh, they fight based on a, the expense of the burden to the bottler and for a number of other reasons. But I can debunk on this conversation all of them. I mean, if the... Bottle bill was repealed in Michigan. Bottlers would lose $7 million in aluminum value. That's what they get paid. It's, a, it's, a, it's on their income line. They expect that money. And so all the battles that we're hearing in, the, in North America, Coca-Cola just produced a document that had 11 best practices in a bottle bill. Michigan's bottle bill can check off eight of those best practices. Why is the UK, why is Asia, why are these 40 countries that I have in front of me all making it work and the U.S. is fighting it? It's a challenge. So let's talk on that a little bit about why we haven't been able to include water bottles yet. Why are, we, why are there some beverages that are included and some beverages that aren't? What, what's the philosophy behind that for those people who don't know? Well, I think you got to th look at the history of the bill itself. I mean, it was enacted in 1979. The only bottled water was Perrier. This is a changed. Uh, this is a changed environment. We're all about convenience. We're all about one-time use. So it's a different world than it was in 1979. That was, people were thinking about. All right, so we don't want milk on there because we just don't want. It. It was driven by Farm Bureau, which can tell you why milk wasn't there. 
it was looking at the growing soft drink and beverage industry and beer industry. I mean, when you think about it, even corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup, wasn't really around when this was enacted. This was just growing. And so Michigan got in on the the, bo- the beginnings of the uh, what we see now as the current beverage industry. So can you imagine back then of saying, well, let's just include bottled water. Right. So it didn't make any sense, right? So now we're, you know, um, 40 years later, we're celebrating the 40th birthday of, our, birthday of the bottle bill d- in December of this year. And it's a totally different environment. In, in 2014, let's go back a little bit more. In 2008, Michigan was hit harder than any other state with the recession. By 2014, uh, a survey came out saying that Michigan was still three bottles of soda to one bottle of water. It was the only state in the nation that wasn't at a one-to-one ratio. We got hit so hard, and what's cheaper? To buy a 20-ounce bottle of Coke or a 20-ounce bottle of water? A 20-ounce bottle of Coke is actually cheaper. So that's what they bought. That's what people bought in 2008 because everything was looking at how to save money. And so Michigan is now at a one-to-one ratio, and there, there needs to be changes made. Whatever they look like, shoe pan recycling and the Michigan bottle bill um, support system has the ability to manage whatever, mater- whatever number of containers are thrown at us. Uh, expansion is, is what it is. And it's challenging in this environment because there's a lot of lobby money against it. But Shupan can has the ability, has the equipment, has the processing ability to manage those materials if that was the as if that's what the citizens of Michigan wanted. So what I heard you tell me there was that the French were the snooty bastards that came up with bottled water. That are the people from Fiji. I can't remember. I'm just picking on you. <laughs> It's important to know as we're talking about different environments, you know, let's kind of transition over to glass. You know, we, we talked a little bit about cans, we talked a little bit about plastic. Let's talk about some glass for a second. Wine in the material stream. You know, wine's not part of the redemption process today. I mean, I'm sure it could be if if we elected to do that as a state. But glass packaging, you know, outside of curbside programs or dropped off programs for recycling, you know, traditional core recycling, there's really no good mechanism out there for reclaiming water bottles. Is there? Can you expand on glass and liquor and wine bottles and tell us a little bit about what you think are the best solutions here? I can tell you that the vibe of our industry is going towards removing glass from curbside recycling. It's heavy. It's a contaminant. Less than 50% is recovered from the curbside. And it impacts everything else in the in the stream. So, if I don't think anybody would be surprised as that is pulled away, and the convenience of, of recycling glass is going to be a challenge because it's going to be a drop off. It's not going to be picked up at your house. Is there a better way to do it? Well, I mean, Canada, five provinces in Canada have a bottle bill that includes liquor bottles and wine. So yeah, it can be managed through that system. That's just the system that I don't I think I left out of the description is that that glass in a bottle bill system is color sorted. It's sorted by clear and brown and green glass combined. 
Therefore, not that it was ever shipped to China, but the Chinese sword and all the challenges that uh, recycling has faced in the last um, several years never ha impacted glass and still has an impact. Our, our price tag of $45 a ton for clear glass has never even fluctuated. There's always a market for it. And you can't say that about a mixed colored glass. And colored is, the, is what, what they call glass when it's in, a, in its, uh, quote, broken form. So colored, again, is, is when you recycle it at the curb and it goes to a MRF, most of that glass comes out as colored. And at a, a curbside recycling program, you know, Roger said that glass is, you know, $45 a ton in value. What, what that does in a MRF setting is looks at 60 to $100 on the opposite direction. Glass, again, as Roger said, is very heavy. And so it takes a lot to transport that. Um, basically, the same equipment that's used to transport sand to a foundry is the same equipment that's used to transport glass back to a facility that's going to do something with it. And and that cullet glass doesn't typically become glass again. It becomes an aggregate or a filler in another product. So, you know, I, I want you guys to keep that in the back of your brains as you think about glass. There's, there's tons of resources that explain that. But, you know, between what Roger just said and what I just said, you know, that gives you a pretty broad scope of the impact on curbside and, and why it's ineffective. The only other thing that you left off there, Roger, is glass is an aggregate. So when you put it on a conveyor belt system, it wears down those conveyor belts relatively fast. And that's part of the issue within the MRF structure is it's, it's you know, that aggregate keeps on wearing on equipment. Um, and that cullet glass tends to embed into other products, which is part of the reduction in value that we're seeing out of that Chinese sword mechanism. So the big takeaway I had there was, you know, you said in Canada, we've got, or UK, you've got some places that have included wine and liquor both places. Both places uh, included wine and liquor in the redemption programs. And by sorting that material at the store to keep that stream clean and glass color specific, there's value to it. Definitely. That's, uh, you know, so that sounds like something that, you know, we as an industry of professionals need to help educate our legislators on so that when those conversations come up, they have the ability to have a little bit of color to paint on it. So while we're talking about alcohol, let's kind of bring this down to a, uh, a more social level. For the folks at home, Roger brings around some of the best damn bourbons I've ever had. He is a four-pack carrier of bourbons at any event that he shows up to. I've upped that to six, by the way. Oof, yeah, the selections are great. So let me warn you folks, Roger loves his bourbon. Share with our friends. Go ahead and dazzle me. What's the best one you've had this year? I don't think it ever changes. I think uh, one of the best bourbons I've ever had was the was one of the first bourbons I ever tasted originally, and that's Elmer T. Lee. It's a great product. But even more, the evolution of what's happening in Michigan with creating some uh, great bourbons is a lot of fun to watch. Um, just uh, enjoyed a couple uh, Grass Widow bourbon that's made in, in downtown Detroit. Uh, there's a lot of them out there, and uh, the interesting thing about bourbon is it's price fair. It's a drink that you can drink however you want it. Some people drink it on ice. Some people drink it with one ice cube, 20 ice cubes. 
It's how you enjoy it. And I've been loving bourbon for a good 10 years now and uh, appreciate the craftsmanship that it takes to get a good bourbon to the stage that I enjoy to drink it. And variety is the spice of life. You know, the other nice part about the bourbon consumption is it, it takes time. You don't sit down and slam a cold beer on a hot day. That's not what you do with bourbon. You spend time with a friend. You enjoy it. There's a, there's a, great, uh, there's a great video on Netflix called, uh, um, called Neat. And, it, and, it, and it's the, there's at one point in time three generations of Buffalo Trace distillers sit down with a, with a very expensive bottle of bourbon pour a glass and the youngest one pours a pours a drink in each glass and then puts the cork in it and the oldest gentleman of that generation who all three are buffalo trace distillers three generations in a row of the same family says no 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 you don't put a cork back in the bottle we sit back and we enjoy it so it doesn't end it's it, it really is a friendship and it it is really Gives you the time to sit back and ponder and enjoy and hang out with good people. Good advice right there, my friends. Take time. So coming back on topic, let's keep with the theme of alcohol. There's a trend going on right now in the microbreweries across this country where they're shifting from bottles to aluminum cans for added convenience. Uh, it's very uh, hard to bring a bottle on a boat. It's very hard to bring a bottle around a pool in a lot of places. Let's explore that process and tell me the pitfalls that has when it comes to the redemption market and the recycle market. I'm trying to trying to wrap my head around this question, Jonathan, because it's a it's a solid question. Um, there's so many different ways to go with this. So there are people that only drink out of a glass bottle, but then when they go and travel and move someplace, they want something with more. Um, convenience, easier, lighter. Um, the challenge is, a, is, a, is aluminum can is like the perfect packaging. But yet, the package itself hasn't changed since the pull tab changed. Where plastic can give, that, give, give the marketer all sorts of different options and changes. So I'm going to go a little bit of a couple different directions on this. First of all, we're going to look at an aluminum can and say, yeah, it's a great packaging. But it's also being changed in 2019, the expectations of driving, um, the automotive industry has driven the, the production of aluminum to the point that the production of can sheet, which is a very specific aluminum used to produce an aluminum can, is now being driven out of the U.S. And it's going to be brought in from Saudi, uh, Turkey, and China. So that aluminum is going to come in and uh, it, will be, um, it will be impacted by tariff costs, which are going to change the packager's idea and expenses. So think about all of a sudden your aluminum can costs are going to have an upcharge or tariff. Could be 10, 15, 20% in some cases. So that's going to change how the beverage industry looks at an aluminum can next year. Secondly would be glass. There's a preference, there's a drive in our current U.S. population. To, they think that glass is safer. It's a safer product. It's, it, it might not have, uh, 
you know, a, an inhibitor sprayed inside the glass like an aluminum can would have or a plastic bottle would have. In general, glass tends to, to draw people back to the old days when everything was better. So there's a drive to go to glass, which is going to be a real challenge if it's removed from the recycling industry. Third of all is plastics. Plastics gives a bottler, or, or I should say a bottler and a marketer, umpteen different abilities. We can change the color. We can change the shape. It could be the shape of a pumpkin if you wanted to this time of year. So there's a real uh, demand for what sticks out behind a glass, a lit glass door when you go to the convenience store to buy. And I think that's driving the bottling industry and the marketing industry to a higher volume of containers done in, in plastic. So I'm not sure I answered your question strictly about aluminum cans, but I answered it about packaging. Okay. So on that packaging note, the transition to the aluminum can as it relates to the microbreweries has to do with the capacity of bottling. And I'll use bottling as a generic word. You know, it used to be in, in order to produce a product and to sell it, you had to package it into a bottle as a microbrewery. And you had to invest in some expensive equipment or you had to outsource that and send that product somewhere else to have that happen. And in today's world, we've gotten really efficient at that product. There's uh, what they call mobile canning uh, equipment that comes around to microbreweries and mobile bottling equipment that basically is a semi-truck that parks outside their manufacturing facility and does it all right on site for them. There's a pitfall to the aluminum side of that, though, is there not? Oftentimes, those small volume craft breweries can't afford to do uh, pre-printed cans. So usually a, a can or bottle that we're all used to that's a Bud Light or a Miller Light is, is a painted can. It's a screen printed can. And that's expensive. You have to do a huge run of material. So what's coming across is we're, they're coming up with um, a polyvinyl paper mix sticker for no, no better terms, to put on the can. And that adds to, take, takes away from a very pristine product and makes it a contaminated product. In enough volume, those, call, those cause flare-ups in the smelter and can be a safety hazard. Um, on, on the other hand, you're also burning plastic when you're melting st standard aluminum. So the, the residual, as it is called in industry, is causing a problem but what is the answer? Refillable bottle? What's, what's the answer to a small run craft brewery? Because here in Michigan, we have a huge craft beer industry. I just heard from Dan Carmody from Eastern Market that there are more breweries coming to Eastern Market for the beer festival this winter than there were in the country 15 years ago. That's crazy. You're exactly right, though. As a, as a microbrewery, you, in order to grow your product, your brand, your presence, you have to be able to distribute it. And in order to distribute it, you have to package it. And Uniquely. Uniquely. It has to, like you said, draw an eye from behind a glass door. You have to be able to sell that product. And, you know, that's why we've got so many strange named alcohol beers that are out there in the world. Trainwreck from Mount Pleasant one of my personal favorite high alcohol content. Everyone loves that. But you, you have to, these manufacturers have to start weighing the options, do they not? I mean, we have to force them into that conversation, correct? I don't know if you're going to have to force the Michigan Brewers Guild 
I think they are so forethinking that um, I think that they understand and they have the right demographic population that are working for these craft beer industries that there is a lot of discussion about a refillable bottle system. That's going, that's a, that's going way back, right? That's, sure. the, that's the old wear rings you used to see on the glass bottles because it's been through the system so many times. Um, I think that's one of the things that you'll see happen. Um, and I had that experience um, 10 years ago when I went to Brazil and I walked into a, quote, convenience store in Brazil, which is not the same as what we're used to, and grabbed a bottle of soda and walked out the door and had a store owner chasing me down because that was his bottle. I had to drink it on the premise. So, you know, I think that the idea of a refillable bottle system is in the right direction. And I think Michigan Brewers Guild is that kind of group that could make that happen. So we circle around there to materials management again, right? It all comes back to the proper management of materials and, and making sure that, you know, if we choose to do a, a shift in bottles to cans, as this example has been, that we don't include a contaminant in it that's going to mess with the system. Um, you know, the flare-up that you have in the smelter is very similar to people who use waste of energy as their segment of life. You know, those are those are mixes of materials that go into that smelter, and they're designed to create a particular outcome or BTU content in order to do their thing. And if you put strange things in with them, it messes with the system. Yeah, I, I kind of – what marketing is doing to containers to camouflage the core product that's there in order to make it stick out between, in front of a glass do- – behind a glass door – is what's frustrating the recycling industry. We need a drive to a single material product, which a water bottle is already three different materials. I mean, you gotta realize that you've got a bottle cap, a label, and a bottle. That's three different kind of materials already. If we could reduce that to two simply like Verner's is doing, they're doing on the bottle printing on plastic bottles. They're eliminating one whole stream of plastic. 76% of the material that we have to throw away because of no markets are labels on bottles. 76% of everything we throw away in our plant is labels. If you could print directly on the bottle, you just got rid of 76% of our trash. So there's a trend in in what I'll call traditional bottlers, and, and I'll use Snapple as this example. About a year ago, Snapple started transitioning away from glass. And almost all of their product is now in plastic, domestically here in the U.S. at least. I and, didn't realize that. And that's new for them. Um, you go into a convenience store now and you want to buy a bottle of Snapple, it's plastic. And so it's plastic bottle with a metal cap still. They didn't go to a plastic cap, which is another strange and unique change for them. But there's a, again, it's about the feel of their product. It's that marketing. That bottle looks the same whether it was plastic or glass until you pick it up and you hold it. Yeah, how many times have you picked up, looked at a glass or plastic bottle and you can't tell the difference, the, the texture, the look, the feel, they can do so much with plastic nowadays. Right, so it's all around marketing. It's all, it's all a single preform. Every single plastic bottle looks the same and they just inject it with so much water, so much air into a mold and that's where all the magic happens. 
So while we're talking about redemptions and bottle bills and, and all of that, let's let's touch on something that I thought was really interesting from a conversation you and I had a couple weeks ago. Geography in a redemption state. So Michigan, as you guys know, is a peninsula state. You come here for a reason. You come here to vacation. You come here because you live here. Unlike Iowa or Ohio or, or somewhere where you drive through. Can you explain that a little bit for us? Absolutely. It's actually something that, that I learned myself today in talking with, with people smarter than me, uh, is that for Michigan, you don't come to Michigan unless you intend to come to Michigan. And so that actually kind of helps us in our bottle bill because you're not just driving through, picking up a, a bottle of Coke at the convenience store and driving on and uh, dumping it on the other side of, let's just say, Iowa. So in Michigan, being a peninsula state, you drive in there, you enjoy our Great Lakes, you enjoy all our, our state parks. You stay in the state, you consume a container, and you, and you uh, put it back into the system. But in a state like Iowa, which has a bottle bill, you're, you're driving through I-80 through the state. You stop at a truck stop, pick up a pop. By the time your next stop for fuel is, you're in another state. And there goes that dime, or that goes that nickel. I'm sorry, because Iowa's a nickel. And in, in Iowa, every unredeemed container feeds to the escheats, which we talked about. All 100% of those escheats go back to the bottler. So those bottlers are making over a million dollars a piece on just unredeemed bottles because it's a pass-through state. I thought that was really an interesting fact. And we look at other states. I mean, Hawaii doesn't, isn't a pass-through state, right? It's a destination. Right. So, but New York, you know, Connecticut, Vermont, um, Oregon, Ohio, um, I'm sorry, uh, California, all probably see some of those uh, similar challenges. So, as we're talking about, you know, uh, the pass through of it, why is it impossible for us to have at the pump recycling at gas stations? This one's bothered me for a lot of years. You know, it's not one of the questions I prepared you for, but... I, I, I don't think it's impossible. I mean, the state of Minnesota did it for years and tied recycling in with people with special needs and provided uh, a paid service for a gas station. They could pay a service. The van pulled up. The, the team got out. They took care of... They had a recycling bin there. They took care of emptying the trash cans. They cleaned the gas pumps. Be innovative. It could happen. It could happen in Michigan very, very easily. But heck, we got to get started just trying to put recycling at rest stops. We got rest stops that see, you know, 10, 15, 20 million people a year that we don't have recycling at. So my passion, recycling on the go. Let's get, get, let's get going on it. I love that. Recycling on the go, folks. Hashtag Roger Cargill. So I'd like to start wrapping up a little bit with a little rapid fire action, kind of like the pucks flying at you at a goal, because I know you're used to being hit with anything. So just bird out whatever comes to the top of your mind as I throw the following questions at you. How important are professional organizations to you in terms of getting in front of the right people? Well, I think a professional organization provides a couple different things. Sometimes it's a life jacket, especially in our industry. Passion carries us a long way, but sometimes we have to cry on another 
recycler's shoulders just to get enough energy to keep going. So yeah, I, I think they're essential. Um, there are a bunch of like-minded people that have to uh, that are committed to changing the minds of those people out there that maybe just need to learn, maybe just need to be educated uh, on how simple recycling could be. Um, I enjoy sharing stories with people that have been in my shoes and done the things that I've done and learning from them on how to make it better. Because as a group, we can make a difference in Michigan. As an individual, you can make a difference in Michigan. But as a group, it's more effective, more efficient, and covers a lot more ground. What's the biggest challenge you've seen in the last five years in your portion of the recycling industry? Challenge or change? Let's go change. I think there's a huge green wave moving through our country, not just Michigan, but our country. Michigan might be a little bit smaller wave, but I know five years ago when Starbucks stakeholders said no way to a change in the way they provided service and to look at more uh, environmentally sound products, five years later, a straw in a turtle's nose has changed our world and changed Starbucks. That couldn't have happened without stakeholders of Starbucks supporting a move towards a a greener, more logical end product. So I'm saying ride that wave. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've seen. I've been in this business for 28 years, and I thought that green wave 10 years ago was dying, but it's getting stronger. Thank God. Thank God. How do we convince people to stop talking about trash and start talking more about materials management? And when I say that, I mean trash and recycling as a whole. We have a a trend in, in our industry and in our country to talk about the individual products instead of the stream. And I think that this last round from China has really gotten us to where we need to start realizing it's a process. It's it's materials management. It's not recycling. It's not trash. It's it's the way that we need to do things. How do we do that, Roger? How do we get people to that next step? That's a that's a huge huge question, and I think that's like any answer to any big question. It's multifaceted. There are so many different points that need to come into place, none of which are impossible, some of which are harder than others. But I think it starts off with people have to care. People have to understand that what we've done to the planet will require us in the next generation to turn it around. That's not a long time. We have to learn that, that the change that we need to make is personal, um, and we have to reach out to, you know, we're from Shupan perspective, I, I want to bring um, kids from our community in to tour our plant to see what happens after the bottle goes in the container. You know, it's bringing people's awareness up, helping them understand that, yeah, they do need to care. And let's start with a younger generation. Let's work right through the system and find ways to communicate and create care. And that's not just in recycling. I think the empathy and care 
for each other needs to needs to change. Um, so how do we get people talk, to talk about trash to recycling? I think the discussion is happening right now, um, but there's so much static in the air that we need to we need to figure out our own way uh, to get our point across to people. And I'm not I don't sure I have that answer, but I think a group of like-minded people putting their heads together will come up with a way. The interesting thing you said there to me was if you look at what we've done in a hundred years, if you just fathom what we're going to look like in the next hundred years and you look at all the changes that have been made so far technology used to change at a very slow pace and where we've gotten now it changes so rapidly so many things happen overnight um you know i have a friend of mine that decided he was going to build a product and so he sketched it up, went out on fiber, had someone do a mechanical drawing of it, went to a local industrial sewer and had them sew up this bag product. And he did it all within 48 hours. 48 hours. That used to, as a manufacturer, wow. it would take you a year to do that in the old world. And you can do that in 48 hours now. So technology is just ripping along, and, and we have the ability to make these changes if we choose to. We just got to get people that are willing to do it that want to put that care into it, like you said. Yep. I would agree. If there's one event in terms of trade shows that you'd recommend to an industry professional, what would it be and why? Now, that can be a local show, a regional show, a national show. What's the, what's the one that you went to in the last two years that you just went, holy crap, I wish more people would come to this? You know, I, I, I think about uh, trade shows, I think about industry-specific groups, and the one that always, always sticks out in my mind is the Michigan Recreations and Parks Association. MRPA is an amazing group of very young, very progressive, very fun, very open to innovation group of people. In 2009, after the economy crashed, I remember sitting in as a, as a vendor advisor to the MRPA's conference, and they literally opened up their entire conference and said, we're gutting it, we're changing it, what do we need to do to make it better, what's your perspective? Uh, they also reached out to bring other organizations that had similar viewpoints, similar goals, brought them into the vendor discussion about the conference and looked at ways to partner, partner. Exactly what needed to happen in that economic condition. And since then, they've done nothing but look forward, grow, and blow those that conference up. So if you ever have a chance, go hang out with a bunch of recreation and parks professionals. Their annual show is is just something to be really proud of. Roger, I want to thank you uh, for being here today and taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with me and, and have this conversation with the folks at home. Before we part ways, there's two things I need from you. I need you to tell me how those people can get a hold of you if they want to. What's the best way to reach you? And any parting last words of wisdom as you might want to cast. Well, uh, easy to get a hold of me uh, is uh, rcargill at shupan.com. That's the best way as an email, but I'm always open to phone calls at 517-881-9152. And if I had a parting shot, 
it would be that Michigan uh, started on the right path 40 years ago with the bottle bill. We spent the last four years talking, sharing stories, sharing challenges. We have an opportunity to move recycling forward in some format or another, and most everybody listening won't have a lot of control over it because there's going to be some deals and some things made. But what we've got to look forward to is the only thing we've done in 40 years to make a difference environmentally in Michigan on a scale that will affect every single county in Michigan. Good or bad, right or wrong, we need to make the environment a priority. We have too many beautiful places in Michigan to continue in the direction we are. And recycling is only part of making these of saving these places and keeping them clean and defining what we call pure Michigan. Roger, thank you very much. Good or bad, right or wrong, we need to make an environmental difference. Drop the mic, brother. You're out of here. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for staying tuned to this episode of Recycler Secrets. Remember, keep your earballs focused on me and your eyeballs focused on the road. Have a great day.